Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Very good. Here we are. What question appealed to you most this week? Well, there's one that says for Rory, Paul Grindley, how can civil servants become politically active? Now, you've been a civil servant and a politician. And he says, after reading Alistair's most recent book, I'm interested in becoming more involved in politics. However, he goes on, as a civil servant, there are limits to what I can get involved in. Does Rory have any advice for active civil servants who want to get politically active? Oh, I'm afraid. If are you, you worried want, about that? Uh, yeah, I'm afraid if you want to get really politically active, you should leave the civil service and either become a, you know, join a party, become a special advisor, stand for election. I, I don't. I, I think it's really important that our civil service is independent profession. We were just talking yesterday in relation to Bangladesh that one of the great tragedies is the way in which Bangladesh never managed from the 70s onwards to create a fully professional, independent, non-political civil service. It's one of the great crowns and you know crown jewels of Britain. Yeah. I mean, I had an email the other day from, not Paul, another civil servant, who said that he was thinking of becoming a candidate. Very good. But that means to become a candidate, you have to put your name out there. Yeah. So if you have a very, very, very strict view as you do, it means you're further cutting the gene pool. Because he was saying that if he goes for it and doesn't get it, it damages his career. If he goes for it and gets it, his career as civil servant's over anyway. Because I don't think you can be a member of a political party. You can, yeah. Although I I wasn't, and and many civil servants don't join political parties. For that reason. For that reason. Yeah. 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 No, it's a tricky one. It's a trick one. Anyway, Paul, just, um, you know, work away, wheedle away. <laughs> I mean, civil servants are amazing because obviously they have, you know, like all of us, very strong political views. But generally speaking, they are incredibly mm. professional. I saw something this week yeah. that did slightly alarm me and I, th- I think would not have happened under any previous government. It was a, the Treasury put out one of those sort of tax calculator things that was absolutely, to my mind, overtly party political. And I saw that the Labour Party have actually written to Simon Case about it, I think, the Cabinet Secretary. I think the the lines are already blurring too much. One one of the problems is that because politicians get impatient with being blocked by civil servants, there's been a tendency to bring in civil servants who seem to be more on the government side and more predicate, and and younger civil servants, people Mm. like Simon Case, uh, who's the head of the civil service, but it's much younger, much less experienced than his predecessors. And I guess one of the questions for 
a Keir Starmer administration is, will they have the confidence to go back to having more senior people who can be quite awkward, who can often refuse to mm. do what the politicians but, but want them to do. probably makes for better government. But makes better government, yeah. Um, by the way, when I was up in Scotland, Stephen Monroe, regular listener on the Coroner Ferry, he said, you in particular, but also me, that we too often talk about a Labour government as though it's already a done deal. Yeah. Which you did there when there's a Labour government. Yeah. I assume it's a done deal. Do you really? Yeah. I also think See, I'm, I, I, I I'm also sort of maybe a bit specialist. Did you assume Brexit was going to happen? Uh, I did manage. I had an argument with a guy who was the former Attorney General of Ireland and then the head of Goldman Sachs at one of these horrible trilateral commission meetings in Rome. You know where all the great European yeah were there. So it was um, it was Count Hermann von Rompuy and Mario Monti and all these people bang on. And he said to me, what's going to happen? And I said, it's going to be 52-48 for Brexit. Wrote it on a bit of paper, which he kept. And he produced it How for me. How long before? About three months before, oh, probably. Okay, pretty good. But I was largely doing it to wind him up. I'm not sure I would have right. put a you lot of money on it. The bookies. <laughs> yeah. Okay, question for you. Mm. Malcolm Stark, apart from instances involving legal constraints, when is it permissible for ministers and other politicians to respond with, I haven't seen red heard of this document stroke claim stroke statement. Mm. Do you think that's a reasonable response if a minister went out and did that in your day? I don't think it's great. Uh, I think it's permissible if something is sprung upon you. Um, I guess what that question stems from is that Rishi Sunak was interviewed by Laura Koonsberg on the BBC and she was asking him about documents which she said she'd seen in which he expressed his reservations as chancellor about the Rwanda scheme. And she pressed him quite hard on him. I saw the clips on social media. And he kept saying, I haven't seen the documents. He didn't answer the question about whether he'd expressed reservations. So I think that is unacceptable because actually he's only answering the part of the question about the document as opposed to his just, view. Just, just help me because I do, I do, I mean, putting myself in his position, I can see why it might be quite awkward if when you were Chancellor, you thought and probably maybe continued to think that the Rwandan scheme was a bit dodgy and then as Prime Minister, you're getting behind it. What, what's the best way of answering that kind of question? Imagining he actually had been a bit against the Rwandan scheme when he was Chancellor and now getting behind it. He sort of got there in the end. Look, my job as Chancellor is to analyse policy from every which way, but especially the financial implications and what discussions took place led to the policy that we now have. Right. Now, he kind of said that, but he kept making this point, I haven't seen the documents you're talking about. And it was similarly, I don't know if you've seen that mashup, I believe they're called, of his evidence to the COVID inquiry. Somebody has put together all the moments in which he says, I don't recall, I can't recall, I can't remember, I don't recall, I don't have an exact recollection. I think once you give the impression that you're actually trying to stall or hide behind it, I think it becomes very unconvincing. But it can be a tactic. It's just a straightforward tactic. John Sunat, how will you keep yourself safe from AI-generated misinformation during the elections? Well, I don't think anybody can honestly answer that question with any great knowledge. I saw another extraordinary, well, it wasn't that extraordinary yesterday. There was one of Joe Biden. He had Kamala Harris at his one side and another woman at the other side. And he did this response to a question. And he basically said, well, my answer, to I, I want to answer that in one word. And then he just said this kind of gibberish. Right. Now, I watched that and yeah. said, that is not real. Yeah. And, and it, you, you know, you get a feel. And that was on, that was on X. Yeah. And had someone put a comment saying this isn't real into the post? Because that's they one of the things they were They hadn't yeah. um, at the time I saw it. But the comments below it were, including Elon Musk, right. 
including Elon Musk with a comment or a yeah. or yeah. a question yeah. mark yeah. or a blimey yeah. kind of thing. So I don't know how we're going to handle this. I also saw one of your friend King Charles yep. doing stand up comedy. Have you seen that one? No. Quite no, I funny. think I mean I think it's I think it's very very worrying for everybody. I think it's worrying for our constitutional monarchy. I think it's really. I mean, wh one of the questions is how quickly you can get on top of these things. So if I were in government, I would be setting up a very very efficient rapid rebuttal unit. You almost can't prevent somebody loading something fake onto X, but you've got to move within minutes to get. So what well, I think you need a protocol where let's say you're Keir Sami, you're the new prime minister some crazy stuff goes on, you need a protocol where you can immediately get the leader of the opposition, the key newspapers to come out immediately and say, this is false and have an agreement that yeah, you'll do that don't, together. Don't you think that some of these newspapers will be wanting things that they might deep down know aren't real, actually turn them into stories? Could you try to build that trust? Because rem remember, it was quite good when, when there was that fake story about Keir Starmer shouting at someone for dropping his iPad. Um, there was a very, very rapid rebuttal from Tory ministers who came out immediately and said, this is... So clearly there'd been some but kind of agreement But I, another one I saw last week was a very sort of slick looking video of, and it was Keir Starmer explaining why he's going to have to put taxes up. And was it shot as though it had been caught in an iPhone? No, no, it was, it was quite slick. It was right. quite slick. Um, and, it was, and, and it was completely fake. Well... He's, I've certainly never heard him say that. Right. And what I think that will do, that will just do the rounds on WhatsApp groups. And, you know, we were talking about... So um, it need, needn't go on X. A lot of this is spread through WhatsApp. And, and, and No, but also your idea that they come together and say, right, we're all going to come out and rebut this yep. stuff presupposes that people are going to be looking out for the rebuttal. They won't, they won't necessarily see the places where it's being rebutted. The context, you thing, the context thing on X is very tough, isn't it? If it yeah, could, and I'll tell you what, if I, were, if I were Rishi Sunak, I would be a little bit alarmed about how many of his tweets at the moment are being contextualised. I don't know whether he's doing them himself or whether he sees them, but an awful lot of them... Are being contextualised. Yeah, there yeah. was one the other day that said, this is not true. Well, I, I guess that will become part of the normal political machine. Yeah, but then, both, then, both, then, both parties, then as we talk both about parties that... parties will start employing contextualising people. Exactly. But then as the, the, what that does is it just sort of feeds this narrative that they're all a bunch of liars and you can't believe a word they say. So I think the most important thing is that the parties just find better ways of communicating what they are actually saying and doing. And, and in America, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what the Republicans in particular... Did you see the... Did you see the by the way, this wasn't fake. Did you see God Made Trump? The video? No. I don't think we should put it in the newsletter, but it was this unbelievable film made by some of these evangelicals. About how God made Trump. God made Trump. God so, made Trump. So yeah. I, I know we're often accused of pedultery, but it's quite a niche podcast done by Tristram Harris, who does a lot on AI, where he's interviewed two people specifically about AI and elections. It's it's quite a serious um, uh, listen, takes quite a long time. What are you saying? We're not. Uh, no, no, no. But so we're I'm, trivial? I'm, 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 no, I'm saying... We're not I'm, important. I'm, we're pointless. No, I'm, not saying, I'm not, not saying any of that. And I'm, I'm trying to explain that it may not necessarily be the thing that everybody, at top of everyone's list, but if you want a bit of a listen, we'll put, put a link in. And what, what conclusions? Well, one of the things that they're interested in is this question around uh, whether you can create sort of QAnon-style conspiracies. So obviously QAnon, this US conspiracy where, you know, Hillary Clinton's involved in child sex rings, this kind of stuff, that AI is very, very good at doing that kind of stuff. But their big point, and I think this is a central point, is that we are in a critical year, which is the gap between when the US, UK and others have worked out what the regulation is and the gap before the regulation is actually implemented. 
So this year of big elections is the most dangerous time imaginable. People have identified the problems. They've written the laws, but the companies are not going to begin to respond until next year. So we are in the absolute worst moment for this. Mm. And with social media, that is exactly the kind of rhythm that the social media companies developed so fast, so effectively from their own perspective, that the politicians, by the time their process got anywhere near on top of it, uh, it had already gone. Now, listen, here's one which uh, becks bitchly, the political situation in Germany. What has happened to such a stable country? Yeah, go on, tell us about that. Yeah. Well, have you followed this stuff yesterday? Go on, tell us. Well, <laughs> we're very used to seeing the French uh, out on the streets, but the German farmers have pretty much yesterday, they just blocked virtually every major road in the country. And this is about? It's about subsidies, it's about diesel prices, it's about you know traditional farming issues, but it's been pretty heavy, and especially as the, the, the government had actually responded to some of their concerns and made some concessions ahead of it. I suspect if Franz Beckenbauer hadn't died yesterday, which obviously is a massive, well, it's a big story here as well, but massive news in, in Germany, this has been like a really, really difficult moment for the police, for the authorities, and it just didn't feel very German. And of course, the AFD are yeah, to, desperately to, trying to get all over it. Well, tell us a little bit more about that, because one of the things we didn't cover in as much depth as you would have been able to do is the, the AFD's success in elections in Bavaria. Mm. So give us a sense of what the story's been. I mean, you, you began talking to us about AFD successes earlier last year, but what's been going on over the last few months with the AFD? Well, they, they, they've won real power in some places, I, you know, fairly small communities, but elect mayoral elections and so forth. They're steadily now sort of 20% in some places, 30% in the polls. But the problem, the bigger problem, I think, is that the ample coalition, the traffic light coalition, they're all struggling in different ways. Has Schultz really been able to sort of deliver some of the campaign promises? Struggling. Are the, the tensions, they, the, the Lindner wing of the coalition actually had a vote over so the- What's this wing? The, sorry, sorry. The, the, the third part, the Free right. Democrats. They had a vote about whether to continue with the coalition. Now it was passed, but there are clearly big divisions there. You read a lot about difficulties between Schultz and Baerbock, who's the, the leader of the Green part of the coalition and who's the, who's the foreign minister. And meanwhile, these, these protests, so Robert Harbeck, who's the vice chancellor, he was on holiday in somewhere up in the north on one of the islands and got a ferry back. Word spread that he was on this ferry and these farmers, no doubt, perhaps sort of ventilated by some of these hard right forces as well, they turned up to greet the ferry and the police turned out and they advised the ferry to, to go elsewhere. Goodness. So this is ferry with other people on who were said they were C absolutely couldn't, terrified. Couldn't they couldn't dock because of these so protesters the there farmers. and they were sort of, basically, they were... A bunch of very they were looking angry for German him. farmers. They were looking yeah. for him, yeah. yeah. So this is quite fertile ground for the AFD and the, the far right in Germany, um, which continues to exploit presumably immigration, climate change. Cost of living. Cost of living. Yeah. Yeah. And the German economy not doing great. Not doing as well as they used to. And then meanwhile, you've got the European elections. You know, we're back to this point that we have said before about Francois Hollande saying, have we, the Brits, had our peak populism with Brexit and Johnson? And is Europe now sort of getting there? Now, I don't know whether the come the European elections, whether the far right will do as well as and, some of their polling suggests. Com coming in June. Coming later this year, yeah. Um, and possible when the European elections happen that we end up with a situation where 
the AFD does well, where the Swedish Democrats do well. Le Pen's party. Le Pen's party yeah, as well. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's possible. It's possible that it goes the other way. But if you see this happening in Germany at the start of a new year, going into that, and then, and then bear in mind, we've just had, um, well, sticking on Europe, last night, news that Macron, uh, it was politely put as that the prime minister is resigning in due course. He's going to appoint this guy, Gabriel Attal, well, who's Just to, to talk us through this, what, what else was the prime minister of France resigning and a 34-year-old coming in? What, what is this all about? Well, I suspect it's all about him trying to give the government a bit of a refresh. I think she's done a pretty amazing job, right. considering he hasn't had a parliamentary majority. He's had, she's had to get things through through the, the National Assembly. But anyway, Gabriel Attal, I think he's 34, he's the education minister, he's, he's a very smart, young communicator, background in, I think, communications. He's clearly talking about it's time to refresh. That's the sort of thinking behind it. Um, European parliamentary elections never really felt in the UK that they were as important as they do in other parts of the European Union. But these are a big deal for Although, of course, the success of the UK Brexit Party in some of those elections was oh, quite yeah. important in Absolutely, terms of yeah. pushing the Conservative yeah, and also Party the way and scaring that, them. Also the way that Farage used his position in the European Parliament as a, as a platform. We had a question about Farage, actually. Nick Simpson, what's Farage's game in terms of the will he, won't he be involved with reform during the election? Is he trying to win a place in the Tory party, drum up more publicity, or is he genuinely unsure? I imagine uh, he's trying to spot all the angles and work out what allows him to go to the election with the maximum impact for Nigel Farage. And what do you think? Do you think his impact is, when you say Nigel Farage, do you think he actually has political beliefs that he wants to put out there, or is it, or is it just an well, all tactical presumably game? Presumably his real dream is to be Prime Minister, and his best route to be Prime Minister is to take over the Conservative Party, not to stay with reform. But it's a very, very long shot. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not an MP. He's not currently going to be allowed to run as a Conservative MP, and it's very unlikely he'd be able to win a Conservative leadership race. So the alternative, I guess, is to try to continue chipping away and build reform up as a party. But in a two-party system, I don't know how they're going to get the seats. Or, or, or is it just about his own profile now? It's interesting, when we were talking about to Guy Verhofstadt on, on, uh, on leading, I don't know how many, he, he mentioned Farage several times, didn't he? He's obviously, he's a big figure yeah. politically. Is it maybe just about him? And, and, and you know, I, I, I hesitate to say I felt sorry for Richard Tice. Uh, I, I wouldn't go that far, but it was fascinating. Last Richard Tice is the chair of the, Reform the, He's UK. the leader. Effectively, yeah. he's the leader it, of Reform. And, and Reform is, is what was Brexit. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, the, the yeah, one yeah, that's yeah, more yeah, from yeah, 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 going back to yeah, sort of Goldsmith yeah, and the referendum yeah. party. And so he did a, a, pre, a sort of New Year's press conference to which the press went along in fairly large numbers because they were told there were going to be special guests there. And it turned out that the special guest was that that woman that I had the rather irate argument oh, with yes, on, yes, that was right. on Newsnight. Yeah, yeah. But they all thought it was going to be Farage. So they were disappointed. I think it's fair to say they were disappointed. Yeah. And all the coverage was about not what they did say, but who wasn't there. Right. So I think he's probably playing a game. He loves, he'll, he'll love the fact, somebody will be saying, oh, well, Alice Campbell and Roy Stewart are talking about it. He'll like all that bollocks. But reform, reformers, the Tories must be worried about reform, I'd have thought, in some of these oh, and it's, seats it's in the, the It's the question that is asked all the time in every country facing a far-right movement, which is, do you try to ignore them or do you try to poach their voters back by mm. playing some of their tunes? And generally, 
generally, I mean, it's not 100% true because Boris Johnson was a bit of an exception to this. But generally, if you start playing their tunes, you're doomed because they can always go further right than you can. Yeah. And you end up going down. Okay, Rory, quick break. Back in a minute. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Emma Siva. Horizon was a PFI initiative. Horizon is the is this system mm. that was used by the post office with this incredible bugs and errors that ended up with people being completely unfairly prosecuted. What are Alistair's reflections on PFI, private finance initiatives? Positive outcomes, limitations, did the nature of PFI contribute to the scandal of what was happening with the post office scandal? Let me just quickly for listeners. PFI is something that the new Labour government went into a great deal, but the Conservatives were doing before. And the idea was that you get the private sector to pay for some of the upfront costs, and then the government pays rent later. So an example would be the private sector builds a spanking new prison, so it doesn't appear on the government's balance sheets. And then the government basically pays them a rent for the next 25 years mm. for using the prison. They do it with hospitals. In the case of um, Horizon, Fujitsu, which was the parent company of this, this bidder, said that they would build this entire computer system for free in exchange for getting the revenue every time somebody swipes through their benefits card. So again, very attractive to the government because it's really good for their public balance sheet and debt because it's all theoretically sits with the private sector. And it's all paid for through the current account, not through the capital account. Anyway, over to you on PFI. Well, I, I, I'd say there were positive outcomes and there are also limitations. I don't think we could have done the scale of public sector investment repair, say in schools and rebuilding of schools and also development of, of hospitals. I don't think we could have done it without PFI. I think if we'd have just sort of gone in and said, right, the only way we can do this is through raising your taxes, one would we have won the election with the majority that we got? Unlikely. Would we, if we just decided to do it that way in government, would that not have led to endlessly being accused of, of betrayal, therefore wouldn't have won the second term, let alone the third term? So I think that so, PSI so, 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 was an important part of the public but, but, sector. But, 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 but what way if the government getting money into the system without raising taxes or borrowing? Because basically the private sector is paying for it and then the government pays them back later. In a sense, you're sharing the risk. Right. And I think the limitations, I mean, this, this came out when we were talking about the, about the post office, you're dependent in a way on the same standards being applied as you would to a public sector operation. And that is not always going to be well, the case. One of the things that I noticed when we were dealing with these things in the Ministry of Justice is that unlike a normal commercial contract, the government is really over a barrel. So when the government decided this was a Chris Grayling decision, who was this sort of not much lamented conservative cabinet minister who decided to privatise probation mm. and privatise 
maintenance of prisons. Well, that was quite a rare example of where they went into it and then literally reversed it. Well, and exactly. So when I was in, we reversed it. David Gork and I reversed these things and renationalized. What were the difficulties in doing that with the contracts that you'd entered into? Oh, it was unbelievably difficult and unbelievably costly. But the problem with this type of privatization is that if the private sector company doesn't deliver, so it doesn't supervise people on probation, so the criminals on the loose who aren't being met, or it doesn't maintain prisons, in the end, it drops back on the government anyway. It, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, sort it out. You know, you promised to do this. And what we found is the private sector would come in and it would massively underbid. So we were spending, I think it was £185 million a year maintaining prisons. Private sector company comes in and it, you know, it's one of these companies that emerged to do this kind of stuff. Um, and they said they would do it for, I think, 45 million. Sure enough, a couple of years later, none of the prisons are being maintained, right? Really rubbish, stain on windows are broken, there's filth everywhere. And the company basically says, well, what do you expect? I mean, you know, you were doing it for 170 million, and we're doing it for 45 million. So obviously it's rubbish. And we then try to insist on our terms, at which point the company simply declared bankruptcy and walked away. And it was the same with the probation system. And it then turns out that although they've got, in the case of probation, massive multinational parent companies, these American multinationals have written the law in such a way that their British subsidiary, they're not really responsible mm, for. Mm. So we ended up covering tens of millions of pounds worth of debt, having to bring the whole thing back in house. And then, of course, we have to spend the 180 million on maintenance instead of 40 million. So we've now got another 140 million pounds a year that we have to spend for whole thing goes wrong. So I think the problem with a lot of these PFIs, and it's true with hospitals and schools, is that in the end, the government has to carry the can because we've still got to run the schools, we've got to run the hospitals. So there's no risk for these companies. They can get the contracts and underbidding, they can underperform. And in the end, if it all goes wrong, we have to take it over. It's the same with um, mm. Birmingham Prison. I think the, the other thing on, on procurement is particularly, because I don't think a Labour government, if Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister, if Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister, I emphasized, Stephen Monroe, you're listening. He, he's, he's going to be in a similar position to the one that we were. So unless you're sort of saying, well, we're, we're, we're going to cut the private sector out of this, the, some of these public sector projects, there's a lot of stuff that Labour are going to have to do that they won't be able to do. So I, I think the, um, if, you, if you look at the, 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 one of the lessons from the post office, and I, I think this goes across our government and it goes across your government, there is a sort of technology and it still has this capacity to kind of to make people feel that they they can't challenge it. And that does give these companies an awful lot of power. And the other thing is, you're talking sometimes in the, within the procurement process of, if you, you have a negotiating table, you've got a middle-ranking civil servant who earns, I don't know what, but way short, 50, well, well south yeah, of six yeah, figures, yeah, yeah, yeah. up against people who are bigger in number bigger in experience and who are better at doing the, some of the sort of dodgy stuff that maybe you have to do when you're trying to get big contracts out of the public sector. Now, in other countries, that leads to all sorts of wide-scale corruption to get deals over the line. And I worry sometimes there's been a little bit too much of that in our country as well of, of late. But the one thing it does do is give these big private sector companies a massive advantage. Now, maybe that means if we are going to continue with this sort of approach to in big infrastructure projects, you've got to start thinking about, well, do we need to bring in people? And I'm sorry, but we're going to have to pay them more than a cabinet minister gets. Because if we don't, 
we're going to be re- continue to be reliant on people who are being outplayed the whole time. And I mean, this whole story of procurement is amazing. But the other way in which government really screws it up again and again is it's always changing the spec. So it will sign a contract to do one thing. And then in the case of the post office scandal, I think it changed 300 times the spec of what was supposed to be delivered, which gives a huge opportunity to Fujitsu to say, well, you know, that wasn't in the contract. We've got to do something new. It's the same with, I was talking to somebody who's a great listener to our program who had worked in MOD procurement on a ship contract where the government came along, decided it was going to make a ship that had been used in the Falklands, you know, 30 foot longer and ended up paying hundreds of millions of pounds because everything it did involved changing its mind. And every time it changed its mind, the company could come back and say, oh, well, you want a steel hull instead of an aluminium hull? And you want to put 52 tanks on instead of 38 tanks, which is one of the reasons why all these things massively overrun. Mm. Because every senior civil servant, senior civil servants change too much, change every couple of years, comes in with another set of bright ideas. The world's moved on. Oh, well, if we're building this tank, we might as well add another set of bells and whistles because, you know, as new technologies come in. It is horrifying mm. how we get screwed mm. over again and again. Morty Barkley, on one of the 2023 Roundup episodes, Rory mentioned that he found the movie Barbie disturbing. Could he expand upon why he found it to be so? I thought that at the time. I remember you saying that, and I thought, should I probe on that? But then I thought, we're not, the rest is entertainment. Did you Did you love the movie? I didn't, and I, I didn't hate it, but I don't know if I, I didn't think it was great. I was glad Oppenheimer won the Golden Globes. Yeah. I thought it was a bit weird, Barbie, because I thought it was trying to do a kind of cute feminist narrative by undermining the old chauvinistic assumptions of Barbie. But in the end, I sort of thought, paradoxically, it kind of played into the same kind of narratives. It was a, just a different kind of cliche. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I didn't think it was very interesting. But that sounds like you were bored rather than disturbed. Yeah. The maybe maybe I find it getting bored, <laughs> disturbing. Um, Vicky Bamforth, can you talk about what's happening in Burma, please? Ethnic and democratic opposition forces defeat more of the junta's army and a transfer of power seems possible. How can the UK government support a peaceful transfer of power and avoid a breakdown to ethnic armed states? So very good question. Shoshana, my wife, is in Myanmar, is in Burma as we speak, right in the heart of all this, um, just been visiting an IDP camp. It is an astonishing story. I mean, we've talked about Sudan, we've talked about Yemen, but Myanmar has been an ongoing conflict ever since basically the military intervened, overall the election, put Aung San Suu Kyi, the lady uh, under house arrest on a trumped up charge around uh, the use of a walkie-talkie. And since then, there has been an explosion of violence, which has included professionals in the Burmese heartland demonstrating against the military, but most dramatically of all, all the minority peoples around the fringes of Burma, Karen, Chin, Kachen, Shan, finding themselves in a massive insurgency against the Burmese army. And it's something that could be sorted, not by the UK, but it's something that could be helped if the US and China really got together on this, but the US and China don't seem to want to play ball. Why do you think it is? I mean, Myanmar is a country which, in particular when she was in opposition and as a sort of freedom fighter, as it were, was right up there as one of the countries that we talked about, the media covered, that politics followed. It seems to have sort of dropped right off the map. Well, I think because of the massive disappointment, because this was a thing that had been run by a military regime from the 1960s. And then this extraordinary woman, an incredibly beautiful, charismatic, dedicated, who'd been under house arrest for 20 years, leads a democratic movement, brings democracy finally to this country with so much potential natural resources. And then, of course, the terrible compromises around um, what happened to the Rohingya. And do you think she could have 
compromised in a different way? Or do you think well, she so, had no choice? Well, so that, this is really interesting. So at the time, of course, we all thought this is absolutely horrifying. Why is this woman not condemning what the Burmese military is doing to the Rohingya? Her defense at the time, apart from the fact I think she's also a Burmese nationalist who didn't have much sympathy for the Rohingya, was if I challenge the military on this, I'll be toppled in a coup d'etat. Mm. She then was toppled in a coup d'etat. Anyway. Anyway. And now we are back to the horror. So I think people, it's it sadly become one of these things. Bangladesh is another example. DRC in a more dramatic way is another example. Many of these coup d'etats in Africa that we've seen over the last year, where I just think we're becoming inured to mm. the collapse of democracies. We, we and, and we no longer have the optimism or the confidence to... Just yeah. on the on the, um, the, the Rohingya, we should point out, because we were pretty, I think it's fair to say, fairly negative about Sheikh Hasina, the continuing Prime Minister of Bangladesh. She did get a lot of praise at the time for the fact that Bangladesh took in an awful lot of the Rohingya. Should we go a bit lighter? Yeah, go on then. Pete B, could you settle the appropriate number of books by the bed debate? My current value of 15 is, I'm told by the bed's other occupant, 14 too many. <laughs> Where do you stand on well, 15, beds? 15, I mean, that's quite an unstable pile, isn't it? I guess that's well, about we got this question three, last four night. feet. Yeah. We got this question last night and I counted. I know it's just past Christmas, but Fiona had 12. 12, you see, that's night. impressive. I had one. Ooh. I normally have a lot more, but what I've done, I've got a new system. Yeah. New year, new system. I've put my bedside pile on a shelf close to the bed. That's very good. So they're not actually on the floor. It won't last more than a couple of weeks. But Well, so my answer, of course, is a Kindle. And I'm uh, sitting here with a Kindle. Kindle. And I have discovered that I have got 1,961 books on my Kindle. How many of them have you read already? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. I'm sorry. I must have more than that. My goodness. It claims to have 2,320. Right. And on this Kindle, I've only read 476 of them. Do you buy books that you never read? I know you I, read a lot, but do you buy a lot of yeah, books and then so don't read them? I, I tend to read the first few chapters. So, for example, this book on politics and governance in Bangladesh, after two, three chapters, I thought, hmm, I'm not so sure. What about, about the post this. office book? Did you go the whole way? Post office book, I will get the whole way through. I'm actually only three quarters of the way through, right. but I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Really, really strongly yeah. recommended. Okay. Um, final question for me, SJ Tots. Have you got a favourite fictional fantasy book or film or television series that you would recommend? Now, I don't know, you maybe don't like fantasy stuff. I'm, I don't know. Is that a terrible thing to admit? No, no, no. I mean, I think it's, it's fair enough. You, I, you, you, I, you didn't like Game of Thrones or any of that kind of stuff. No, I didn't like it. No. Um, my big recommendation, which is more sci-fi, which I just think is just fantastic, particularly on Audible, is something called Project Hail Mary, which is the most wonderful imagined account of a man going off on a mission into space to save the world. And it's actually taught my children more about science than anything you can possibly imagine because it's full of really good contemporary science in a really engaging story about an alien encounter. So Project mm. Hail Mary. I'm probably going to be revealing something terrible about myself right now, but I didn't really enjoy cartoons as a child. Ah, you didn't? I, I, I never... quite like Tom and Jerry, but I, and I quite like the Flintstones, but I didn't, I did, I didn't, I didn't get into them. I didn't do cartoons either. But you, but you do do science fiction. But I do do science fiction. But I've now, I mean, I'm, I'm actually worrying a little bit because like you, I've been thinking about writing book for children. But I realized that as a child, I didn't actually read that many children's books. I began reading adult books quite early. And I'm reading, if you're looking for a book to read to children, which is an adult book, but really works, I think, for a, a six-year-old, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs by Steve Brusatti. It's amazing. He's a professor at a Scottish university, but he writes so well that I think anyone from 80 to six would enjoy it. 
somebody sent in a message just before Christmas saying, will you please stop giving book recommendations? We can't possibly read all these books. And then somebody today is saying, can we please have more book recommendations? So okay, we, let's go with more. I think can, we should go with more. Zachariah Slater, what are your best restaurants in London? You got a recommendation for restaurants in London? Oh God, I got, I got into real grief recently. Oh, all right. I did an interview with a London newspaper or magazine or something, I can't remember what it was. And they said, favourite restaurants. Yeah. And I said, we're not very well blessed for good restaurants oh, Lord. in our area. No. But then went on today with a couple. But every other restaurant I've been to since. Went, went mad. Of like, so I'm going to say Rosella's yes. in Kentish Town. I'm Brilliant. going to say Mimo La Buffala yes. in Southend Green. And I'm going to say Ravel's. They're all in. They're all very near where I live. And what are they? Mostly, mostly Italian food, right? Rosella's, yes. Yep. Um, Ravel's is a very nice kind of old-fashioned restaurant. Um, what sort of white tablecloths? Yeah, 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 and sort of you know quite a varied menu. Somebody I brush, always brushing have, the bread off your white tablecloth. All, all that yeah. I always have duck on croute and red cabbage. Duck on croute, always. I never have anything else there. Um, and then Mimo la Buffala is a uh, run by this wonderful, colourful, very charismatic and funny. Italian. He's not, not been very well recently, but he, he was a motor racer who um, called Mimo who um, had a terrible accident and then went into the restaurant trade. Well, I've got a couple of recommendations. So best dim sum in, in London, you want sort of dumplings. Yeah, you, that's, you, kind of, that's kind of science fiction for me. Yeah, you'd go, you'd go <laughs> either to Joy King Lao in Leicester Square or Jia in South Kensington. But little niche if you want a fancier meal. I mean, a, re a really fancy, lovely meal in a very small restaurant. Kitty Fisher's in Shepherd's Market is really amazing treat, but it's only got, I think, about seven tables. Well, I'm sure that next week they'll have lots of rest is politics listeners. Good. <laughs> Very good. See you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye.